If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open it to Acts chapter number 19. Acts chapter number 19. Um, in case you're new or it's your first time in a long time, we are walking through some different things that we are reading together in our Bible reading plan for this year. Um, if you are not sure what we're talking about, we are reading a plan. It's called the F260 New Testament plan. We are spending this year slowly reading through the New Testament together as a church. If you need a copy of that, we've got some out there in the Next Steps area. You can just walk out there and grab one and uh, jump in reading with us wherever the dates are that start for you know today or tomorrow and uh, just, just jump right in with us, which will be great. But we just take a passage from the week uh, that we've been reading and we spend a little bit of extra time there uh, together just kind of wrestling through what God might have for us as a church. And so tonight we are going to settle in on an interesting story from Acts chapter 19. Now, if you've been reading with us, we have finished First and Second Thessalonians uh, just recently, Second Thessalonians earlier this week. We have jumped back into Acts for a very short period of time. And starting today, if you are up to speed on the reading, whether it's morning or if it's at night, you'll do it tonight. But if you're following what I'm following, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. We'll spend time in 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians and then uh, of course, throughout there, jump back in Acts and then continue moving forward in the New Testament. But before we spend um, a, a lengthy amount of time in First and Second Corinthians, I wanted us to spend a little bit of time uh, in Acts chapter number 19 tonight. I had the privilege um, uh, just briefly earlier this week to serve with Eight Days of Hope uh, with some of the disaster relief from the recent uh, tornadoes that have hit uh, some different areas in Mississippi. We we spent um, a good bit of time yesterday in Amory and were able to help get some trees off some some houses and do some cleanup. And I tell you, it's it's amazing um, all that's happened there and the destruction that lots of people have dealt with and what they're facing. And honestly, it just it, it really reminded me of something that we all know. This is not groundbreaking or new, but uh, tornadoes are pretty powerful. Um, it's amazing. Uh, what they can do. It's amazing how strong they are, how powerful they are. It's amazing the damage that they can that they can cause. So we were riding around and 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 going to where we were helping and serving. Um, we were noticing a lot of things. I mean, tornadoes are are powerful enough to to rip trees out of the ground. It's powerful enough to snap them in half if they don't come out of the ground. They're powerful enough to rip a roof off a house. They're powerful enough to to sling a car through the air to flip entire buildings. I mean, they're extremely powerful. How can something, this is just kind of what was resonating in my mind, how can something have that much power and do that much damage? I mean, tornadoes are just incredible, the amount of power that they have. Well, as I was reading in Acts chapter 19, and I was just processing through all that damage and what happened and just the strength of a tornado, I, I know this is kind of cheesy, and I'll, I'll give you that on the front end, but... So I was thinking about their power. It really kind of helped me resonate and reflect a little bit on God's power, right? Like tornadoes are incredible and what they can do is amazing. But when you think about it, they are nothing in comparison to the power of our God. I mean, it's amazing to think about the most powerful something that, that we can think of or that we can conjure up and then realize whatever it is, however strong, however vast, however large, however powerful, that God holds all of those things in the palm of his hand, right? Like that is the power, that is the might 
of our God. And in fact, I really think that is one of the, the greatest lessons that we take from Acts chapter 19. As we journey with Paul and others, as they experience time in the city of Ephesus, I really think we're reminded of how powerful God is. Acts chapter 19, we're going to start reading in verse number 8. I just want to show you some things. Some of them are obvious. You'll know them. They won't be groundbreaking. But, but what I hope does happen is as we look at them and just kind of realize them, I hope that at the end of our discussion tonight, exploring this encounter, makes us kind of wrestle internally with how God's power, that, that power that holds even the greatest tornadoes in the palm of His hand, how that power is reflected and unleashed in our lives every single day. Acts chapter 19, let's start reading verse number 8. It says, and, and he entered the synagogue, talking about Paul in the city of Ephesus, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is typical, by the way, of what Paul would do when he entered a new area. He would go into the synagogue and he would begin to preach. It goes on, says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now at this point in time, just to give you a little background, Paul has entered Ephesus, and as he has entered the city, he has found some guys who were trying to follow after Jesus, who were baptized in the way of John the Baptist, but were not really sure what it meant to be followers of Christ. So Paul meets them, and he explains to them what it looks like, and he lays hands on them and prays for them, and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are baptized into faith in Jesus, right? And everything for them at that point is turned upside down. And these disciples are with him as he enters the synagogue and he begins to proclaim the things of God. But what's interesting is that what Paul initially encounters is disbelief. But what I think is fascinating is that when we think about God's power, he is in fact more powerful than disbelief doesn't matter the disbelief that Paul and these disciples would face. God was more powerful even than the greatest critics that were trying to keep Jesus from being proclaimed. It's also interesting that the first time that Paul was in Ephesus, it was a little different response than what we read about here. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, if you remember in Acts chapter 18... This is the second time that Paul has gone to Ephesus, not the first. Here's what it says in Acts 18, 19 through 21. And they came to Ephesus. This was probably most likely on Paul's second missionary journey, whereas now we're on his third missionary journey. I know that doesn't matter to us and it gets a little confusing, but in his second missionary journey, first time he gets to Ephesus, it says they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Once again, that was Paul's M.O. Start in the synagogue with the Jews, then move toward the Gentiles. It says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. This is the first time he's in Ephesus. They are begging him, asking him to stay for a longer period of time and continue to preach the gospel of Jesus. 
But this time he's in Ephesus, it's a little bit different. They're not described as asking him to stay or wanting him to continue to preach Jesus. Instead, they're described as stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Now, he started his ministry there like he did everywhere else, preaching in the synagogue. As a matter of fact, Craig Keener, uh, he wrote a commentary on Acts. He writes that Ephesus was a city of probably over 250,000 people. Ephesus is a pretty large area, pretty popular city, lots of people there. So he talks about Paul preaching in the synagogue of a city of more than 250,000 people, which, by the way, is about like South Hill right? Obviously, the synagogue in this particular area was probably a large one, probably a massive crowd that's listening to what he's preaching. However, they want no part of what he's talking about. They are in unbelief. They are stubborn. They are speaking evil of the way. But I don't want you to miss this because I think this is interesting. Don't miss what Paul does when some of them push him and speak evil of the way before the congregation, it says he withdrew from them. Now, I think this is fascinating because it didn't mean that Paul quit preaching. Of course, he didn't quit preaching. He simply went somewhere new and preached to people who wanted to hear the message of Jesus. Even the disbelief of those in the synagogue wasn't going to keep God from moving in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, for two years, Paul preached in the hall of Tyrannus, and all the residents, this is what Luke records in Acts, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You say, Danny, how are they hearing the word when all these people are rejecting, when they're in unbelief, when they're stubborn, when they're uh, criticizing the way, when they're talking so bad about Jesus? Well, the reason is because even disbelief could not stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. God's word will be proclaimed. His name, Jesus, will be proclaimed. If we don't listen or we don't allow it, he will find somewhere else or he will find someone else. I'm reminded of what John wrote in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, as he was writing to the church of Ephesus. Here's what he wrote. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know what Jesus is telling the church? I will leave if you don't turn back to me. I'm reminded of what Jesus said when the Pharisees wanted him to make his disciples stop praising him in Luke chapter 19, verse 40. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. You say, Danny, what are you trying to say? It doesn't matter what disbelief there is, who rejects it, who pushes against, who tries to stop it. The name of Jesus will not be stopped. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Even the rocks will cry out if we don't cry out. You know what he's saying? Jesus will be praised. His name will be glorified. If people don't do it, the rest of creation will do it. Why? Because that's how powerful our God is. 
doesn't matter what you do or what I do or even what the devil himself does. The Word of God will not and cannot be stopped. All I can think about is the words that Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing's going to stop what God has already set in motion. As a matter of fact, in just a moment, we're going to read this passage, but God talks about doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, I know for me, when I think about these types of incredible signs, I think about things that we've never seen or miracles that we've never seen, but I really think when God's thinking about extraordinary miracles, He sees it as His gospel penetrating the hearts of fallen man to save them from their sins. Why? Because even on... Uh, unbelief, disbelief, even the veil that the devil himself, the ruler of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, even he does not have the power to stop what Jesus will continue to do. God is more powerful than disbelief. Let me show you this, though. This is verse 11. Keep reading with me. Acts 19, verse 11. Paul goes on, or Luke goes on, describing Paul. He says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I was reading this and thinking of the many Sundays that I use a sweat rag. I just can't imagine anybody asking for that so that they could use it to heal somebody uh, later. But apparently Paul had a few handkerchiefs himself. Maybe he was also a sweaty guy when he proclaimed the gospel, and people would ask for them. He would plead to have even the garments that he had so that if they would touch someone, their diseases would leave them. What's he trying to tell us? Well, God is certainly more powerful than disbelief, but he's also reminding us that God is more powerful than disease. I mean, I think about all the things that we pray for on our prayer list, and a lot of them have to do with sickness and, and, and health and disease. And the reason why we pray, the reason why we ask God to do something about those things is because we really do believe that our God is more powerful than disease. Now, this is not groundbreaking. I know this. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, we hear about the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul, and we hear about the different healings and the miracles that take place as God uses them to change the world. I was reading this week about the similarities of Peter and Paul, and it was actually pretty fascinating. John Phillips, one of my favorite commentary writers, he describes the, the, the comparison or the, the similarities between the two great ministers of the book of Acts. He says that Luke records in detail Peter's first sermon, and he records in detail Paul's first sermon. He names Peter's first Gentile convert, Cornelius the centurion, and he names Paul's first Gentile convert, Sergius Paulus, governor of the island of Cyprus. He shows how both men went to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. He tells how both healed a lame man. He recounts how both were imprisoned and miraculously released. He tells how both were visited by an angel. He shows how Peter was led by a vision to open the door of the church to the Gentiles and how Paul was led by a vision to the door of the European continent to the church. He tells how both men were once worshipped by some Gentiles and how they reacted. He tells how both were beaten. He records some of Peter's miracles. He records some of Paul's miracles. He tells of the miraculous influence of Peter's shadow and of the 
Paul's handkerchief. He records how Peter raised Dorcas from the dead and how Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. He gives us an example of both men's itineraries. He tells how Peter had a confrontation with the magician Simon, the sorcerer, and how Paul had a confrontation with the magician uh, Elimus. The list, no doubt, could be extended, could go on and on and on. Well, in this account, this moment that we're reading is really no different than so many other things that we have already encountered. As a matter of fact, think about Paul's handkerchief, think about his apron, think about how they wanted that so that they could use it for people to be healed. And now remember this story about Peter in Acts chapter 5. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. These are the types of extraordinary miracles that are happening, both in the life of Peter and in the life of Paul. Now the word extraordinary miracles, that phrase, is an interesting construct in Greek. Here's what it really means, and if you really look it up, it's really, it's kind of confusing. It really means not power. But what it comes to be understood as is not ordinary acts of power. Like it would really be as if Luke was writing and saying, and God was not doing ordinary acts of power by the hands of Paul. In other words, if he wasn't doing acts of ordinary power, then he was clearly doing acts of extraordinary power, right? He was given the opposite of what maybe most people were used to, but this was not the case in the ministry of Paul. And it wasn't miracles in the sense of us thinking about something that we haven't seen before or something that we can't do that a supernatural power has to do. It's literally the Greek word that we hear always for the word power. It's where we get our word dynamite from. So it should give even greater emphasis to what he means by miracle. He's describing the limitless power of God being unleashed in the life of Paul as he lived in obedience to him so much that people were bringing out the sick so that they could be healed. People were bringing out the demon possessed so that they could be set free. God was doing a special work in Ephesus as he has done other times as well in order to show the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. One commentary writer was talking about why extraordinary miracles were needing to be done in a place like Ephesus. Here's what he wrote. He said, evil held the city of Ephesus and the region of Asia so tightly that the Lord had to exercise even greater and more unusual divine power to break its grip. You say, Danny, why doesn't miracles happen like that for us? Why don't we see those types of healings? Well, I'll be honest, I don't know why God chooses to heal at some times and chooses not to heal at others. But what I can tell you is that in the book of Acts, because the name of Jesus, there needed to be proof. Because the Holy Spirit wanted to display to the world that something was different, something had changed. Jesus really was who he said he was during that season. Extraordinary, miraculous, miracle powers of God was displayed amongst people and mostly in the darkest places that you can imagine. Well, Ephesus certainly fits that bill. I don't know why today that doesn't happen. Maybe it's because we don't spend our time in some of the darkest areas of the world. And if we did, maybe we would have more stories like people 
who all across our globe tell about healings and miracles and incredible moments where Jesus flipped everything upside down. Maybe it's because we live our lives in a way in which we don't need that kind of faith anymore. Maybe it's because we depend on so many other things that we don't have to ask God to show up in miraculous ways. Maybe for us, all our normal days are good enough and we're not seeking out the power of God. I don't know the answers to all these things. What I do know, and I can't remember where I read it, but I, I did read it this week, is that if God healed everyone, there wouldn't be anyone in heaven. And so maybe He's just taking His time with some of us, and He's bringing some of us home a little earlier. I don't know, but here's what I do know. Either way, God is more powerful than disease. And He puts that on display as Paul spends some time in Ephesus. I want to show you something else. though. Look at verse 12. Let's go back to it. So, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick so that their, and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. I want to hone in on this for a moment. There's an interesting story that follows. You've been doing our Bible reading. I hope you came across the seven sons of Sceva and thought, what in the world is happening there? Well, let me try to help you make some sense of it. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. That's an interesting thing, by the way. How many of you have ever met an itinerant exorcist? Anybody? It would just be cool if you got like a cousin who does that on the weekends. If he does, or she, I guess, I would really like to meet him. So just keep that in the back of your mind. I am that weird person who likes those scary possession exorcist kind of movies. I apologize. Maybe I shouldn't. Actually, I take that back. I'm going to clip that from the recording. I take that entire statement back. Anyway, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you. I'm not even really sure what that means. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, which, by the way, just let that settle in for a moment. I don't adjure you by Jesus, the Lord of my life. I adjure you by Jesus. I don't even know if I'm saying that correct, by the way. So if I'm not, you can tell me later. I adjure you, not by the Jesus who's my Lord, but by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That's just a fascinating moment. So it goes on. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva we're doing this. So there they are. The seven sons of Sceva are the Jewish exorcists, the professionals who are traveling around and casting out demons. But watch this. This is the interesting part of the encounter. But the evil spirit answered them. So they said to them by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, right? Get out of there. You don't have any power anymore. But the evil spirit answered them. This is, by the way, the moment in the exorcism that would get really freaky, right? Like it's all fun and games, until the demon speaks back to you. And then it's like, whoa, this is, this, is, this is weird, right? So the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, which by the way means to lord, to rule over them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. By the way, this is the account of the seven sons of Sceva. Say, Danny, what in the world is happening? <laughs> well, listen, God is certainly more powerful than disbelief. 
He is certainly more powerful than disease, but, but I, I know you know this, but let me just remind you, God is more powerful than demons, right? I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we can look at countless moments in the Gospels where Jesus healed disease. We can look at countless moments where Jesus cast out demons. We know God is more powerful than demons. But what really stands out in this account is what happens with the sons of Sceva. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about them. There are seven sons, which in the Bible, seven always represents the perfection of God. So when you think about the seven sons, you think, okay, they're representing God's perfection. All right, check. They got what's needed for an exorcism, right? They're itinerant Jewish exorcists. In other words, they're professionals. They've done this before. Okay, they've got experience and have been successful. Actually, it doesn't say they've been successful, but I'm guessing if someone else is paying them to do it, they must have had victory at some point in time. And so, okay, check, right? They're seven sons, perfect representation of God. They are doing this professionally, and so they've had some success. Check. They're sons of a Jewish high priest. They've got to be holy people, right? So check. They've got everything we need to deal with these demons. Yet, the demons send them running away naked and wounded. Which, by the way, can you imagine this sight? First of all, demon possession. Freaky, right? Second of all, the demon speaks back. Also freaky. Third of all, you see the seven sons of Sceva. That's just fun to say, so I want to keep saying it running out of the house naked, that by itself should create some humor, and wounded. Now the word wounded is an interesting word. We get our English word directly from a transliteration of the Greek word. In other words, if you take the English equivalent of all of the Greek letters, you don't even have to add anything. It is our exact word in English. You say, Danny, what's the word? The word is traumatized. Say, Danny, what's the Greek word? Traumatized. It's both. This is the experience of the seven sons of Sceva. They're having a bad day. But what I find even more fascinating is that the demons knew Jesus. Oh yeah, that power is without doubt, right? The demons recognize Paul. Now, it's not the same thing as knowing. It's a different word. It means that they knew Paul, but not quite like they knew Jesus. But they still knew him. He had done something enough to be recognized. However, they didn't know these guys. And I'll be honest, this story's kind of funny. And I always read it and think, man, those guys were idiots, right? Like, check, you know, note to self. Don't try to cast out a demon. Not quite ready for that yet, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm reading the story and I'm usually laughing, but this time around, I had to stop and think for a moment and ask myself, does the devil know who I am? You say, Danny, why do you ask us that question? Do demons know that I'm working with Jesus to banish them from this earth? You see, Jesus had changed the world forever and certainly had power over demons. But Paul, through God's power, was battling against the very schemes of the devil. But what about Danny? Am I even doing enough for the devil and the demons to even recognize my name? Or does he think, oh yeah, Danny, 
Yeah, I don't have to worry about that guy. Right? Does the devil know your name? Daniel, what do you mean? Are you serving Jesus in a way that the devil's going to do what he can to stop you because it is a hindrance to his work? Or would he just send us away as well, naked and wounded? As a matter of fact, there's a moment in the Gospel account where the disciples of Jesus were unable to cast out a demon. I want to read some of it to you. It comes in Mark chapter 9. There are other accounts, but I'm going to read the one from Mark 9. It's talking about Jesus and His disciples. It says, "And When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Him and greeted Him. And, asked, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So we're talking about Jesus. His disciples are arguing with the, with the religious leaders. Jesus comes up. Everybody wants to meet him, talk to him. They're amazed by him. And he asks this question, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. He's possessed. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. In other words, they were like the seven sons of Sceva. And he answered them, Jesus, he said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. End of encounter. And so I processed this, and I thought, Am, am I close enough with Jesus? to be serving the way that He wants me to serve. He is by far more powerful than demons. Am I allowing that power in my life by spending time with Him to the point where I can say, Jesus, what you will, what you want, what you desire, let it be. Let me go on. A lot of ways that we see God's power. But I want to, I want to close with this. Verse 17, Acts chapter 19. Go back there. Sons of Sceva have ran out naked and wounded. And this became, this is verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, exalted, magnified. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and, and it found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now I want to end with this thought. God is more powerful than disbelief and disease and demons. But really, overall, God is more powerful than darkness doesn't matter what evil, it doesn't matter what sin, it doesn't matter what darkness there is, God is more powerful. This moment in Scripture really helps paint the picture that God's more powerful than anything. I think back to the tornadoes that hit some of the areas close to us. Even though they caused a lot of damage, much like the demons did to the poor sons of Sceva, God actually uses that damage, that darkness, that disaster to change everything. Matter of fact, the greatest example of this is from the darkest moment in history. God used it to change everything. I say, Danny, what are you talking about? We're going to celebrate it pretty soon. It's the moment that Jesus died on the cross. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is lied about, he is embarrassed, he is shamed, all for your sins and mine. And the devil thinks in that moment he has won. The demons are celebrating as darkness thinks it has won. Then even in the darkest moment, God uses the death of his son to change everything. Now, imagine for a second the devil's greatest feat to crucify the Son of God. And even in the devil's greatest attempt at darkness, God used it for the greatest miracle that would ever happen. God is still that much more powerful than darkness. Whether that darkness is in the form of disease or demons or disasters or death or anything else that you can think of, God is still at work to advance his kingdom. As a matter of fact, we see it in the people who extolled Jesus, many coming to faith in Christ in Ephesus, but we also see it for those who were now believers confessing and divulging their practices. The strongholds of darkness, even in the believers' lives, was being destroyed. Those who had confessed Christ were struggling with some sins that were still controlling their lives, but not anymore. In fact, they came out publicly, destroyed the old life, and it was an obvious change to everyone in that city what was happening to the darkness over their community. So Paul wraps up this moment, Luke wraps up this moment in the encounter of Paul with this sentence, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Listen, this was happening in such a way that the entire economy of Ephesus was being affected. I don't know if you remember this from your time in Acts 19, but shortly after this encounter, Paul's ran out of town with many others because so many business owners are mad that they're not making money anymore off of the false gods in Ephesus. Why? 
because so many people were coming to faith in Jesus that nobody was buying that junk anymore. And I'm reading that. I'm thinking about the word of the Lord continuing to increase and prevail mightily. And I think to myself, we may not think that we can change our world, but through God's power, all darkness can be destroyed. You say, Danny, our world's too far gone. Our, our country's too far gone. We can't have an impact on our community, our city. It's too liberal. It's too worldly. It's too secular. Listen, friends, we don't even get close to what Ephesus was like. And when they were obedient to God and His Word prevailed mightily, even their economy started shutting down because the name of Jesus was being made so famous. You say, Danny, you think we can do that today? I absolutely believe we can do that today. We don't need political parties and social reforms. Not that there's anything wrong with them. What we need is Jesus to increase and prevail mightily. That's what we need. We need people willing to live in obedience to Christ and love people more than ever. Listen, do you believe that God is more powerful than anything? Do you believe that He wants to unleash that power in your life so that His Word can increase and prevail mightily? Well, if you do, or if you think about it, or you're considering it, let me ask you a couple questions to help you. Do you pray like God is all-powerful? Because I, I truly believe when we realize His power, it will certainly change the focus of our prayers. Do you live like God is all-powerful? You believe He can do it. He can change it. He can turn it upside down. Do you trust Him? We call this faith. You might think all we needed that for was salvation, but we need faith every day as we continue to follow after Christ. Do you share Jesus like God is all-powerful? Listen, how does the power of God, the, the power of God in you that can change the world, how does that power affect your every day? I think back to that phrase, that question, we know Jesus, we recognize Paul, but who are you? Listen, the devil knows Jesus. Does he know you because of the power of Jesus being unleashed in your life? Can I tell you something, friends? It begins with obedience to him. Are we willing to do and live the way that he asks us to do and live? You know what we know about Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19? He was willing to do what it took for people to know Jesus. The question, church, is are we, are we willing to be such a hindrance to the devil that he begins to know our name because of the power of Jesus being unleashed in our lives to turn this world upside down? Listen, I know what God's power is like, and you do too. When will we start allowing that power to affect the way we live?